Uh, welcome to the DDGs in Vietnam and lessons for the Royal Australian Navy seminar, hosted by the Australian Centre for the Study of Armed Conflict and Society at the University of New South Wales, Canberra. I am Vice Admiral Peter Jones, a member of the Naval Studies Group within AXACS. And this seminar will form three episodes of the Australian Naval History video and podcast series. This series is produced in partnership with the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society, Navy's Sea Power Centre and the Submarine Institute of Australia. These three episodes on the service of the three RAN Charles F. Adams class destroyers is proudly sponsored by the designers of the new Hobart class guided missile destroyers, Navantia Australia, with the assistance of the Australian Naval Institute. We thank Navantia Australia for their generous support. In this first episode, we will examine the impact of the DDGs on the REN and their service in the Vietnam War. I'd now like to ask Admiral James Goldrick to come forward to begin proceedings. Thanks, Peter. And can I uh, reiterate my thanks both to AXAX and to Navantia for the support for this seminar. Um, this is an opportunity to take a look at an extremely important period in the Australian Navy's history and some extremely important events. Uh, but I'm just about to give many of you a senior moment. If we were conducting a seminar on Australian naval history at the time the first guided missile destroyer was deploying to Vietnam, the same distance and time back uh, as the DDGs are from us now, we will be examining the operations of the Australia, the Melbourne and the Sydney in the North Sea in 1917 and the Brisbane in the East Indies at the same time. It is a long time ago, and that's why it's all the more important to look now, look deeply, and look at what we can. So I'm going to make some requests uh, to you. We have a terrific range of speakers, and I'm particularly pleased that it isn't simply um, command, it's also the specialisations and also the lower deck. Um, in other words, we do have an opportunity to look at a wide range of what happened. But we are trying to understand what happened, why it happened and how it happened, and we're trying to get the good and the bad and to be honest and dispassionate about it. Uh, if we can't look now and be open with ourselves about how things really went, I think we never can. And I think it's very important that we do because the guided missile destroyers themselves represent a third of the history of the Australian Navy as a national Australian organisation and arguably represent even more than that uh, in terms of their effect on the service as a whole. Please do feel free uh, to ask questions and to raise points. What I'd also ask those of you who are not formally speaking today, if you feel that you have something to contribute um, to write, please do let us know. Um, there are mechanisms you know, for both retaining that material but also putting it into the public domain. I'd also say if anybody comes to mind about material they possess, um, which they feel should be retained and looked after, can I strongly suggest that you discuss that with John Perryman or Greg Swindon from the CPAR Centre who have a wealth of understanding about where the best place is 
for historically significant material to go? Um, it's not always an easy answer. Um, but please do make this interactive. Uh, please do, um, remembering memory is a false jade, um, bring your own perspective if you were out there at the time, and if you weren't, ask the questions of those who were. So with that, um, I'll ask our first speaker, Vice Admiral David Shackleton. Thank you, Peter, and thank you, James. To title, and it's good to see, before I start, it's good to see so many people here, uh, some who I'd prefer uh, we didn't talk about what we did together. Uh, the title of my talk today, Rick Longbottom I'm talking to, uh, the title of my talk today is really to try and set the scene, and I'm going to talk about the impact of the DDGs on the RAN. I want to speak for the next 25 minutes about the broader implications brought to the RAN's professionalism through the DDGs. I'll integrate some personal experiences which, in one way or another, characterise the DDG environment and, for me, made them so rewarding to serve in. And, James, I'd appreciate it if you'd give me a five-minute bell, please. So let me get started. Throughout their service lives, the DDGs were the most capable and important service combatants in the RAN. And when Melbourne paid off, they effectively became the Navy's capital ships. They were central to the RAN's shift of alignment away from the Royal Navy and towards the United States Navy, and for the RAN having to learn how to be self-reliant. Hence, I don't think it's an overstatement to say that the impact of the DDGs on the RAN has been nothing short of profound, which this seminar helps put into perspective and give due credit. In the 36 years from when Perth first entered service in 1965 to when Brisbane was the last ship decommissioned in 2001, the RAN transitioned from effectively being an extension of the RN to having a force structure predominantly based on US origin ships, combat systems and weapons, aircraft, intelligence systems and all manner of capabilities in the middle. And even the submariners got in the game. We became more self-confident and self-reliant as a Navy. We had produced our first version of our own maritime doctrine. We trained all our officers and sailors in Australian training institutions and we could demonstrate that we were as good as anybody else in running a medium power Navy, although some might question that statement. In effect, we had arrived as Australia's Navy. I don't overlook our problems or ignore that we have managed to get some things badly wrong, but we had come a long way. The DDGs were very important catalysts in generating the need for change in the Royal Australian Navy. Not the least of which was because they were American and not British. Vietnam was to, de to demonstrate how competent the RAN had become in the operation of surface combatants. But it would be highly remiss not to give full recognition of the benefits we had received as a Navy from our relationship with the RN. Every officer who commissioned the DDG had been trained in Australia, and the vast majority had also been trained and possibly had exchange service with the, with the RN. 
All of our sailors had been trained in Australia, but to stand as we learned from the RN. It's fair to say that they individually and collectively had the ability to learn how to skillfully operate and maintain what were at the time the most advanced analog destroyers in the United States Navy. We got the logistics piece badly wrong, however, and I'm sure David Campbell will speak to that. When Perth, with three months from returning to Australia from trials in the US, its in-country spares had, not, had still not been ordered from the US in, and the ship was expected to become unsupportable shortly after it arrived in Sydney. When Hobart commissioned, Captain Guy Griffiths reconnected with a World War II USN colleague who he imposed upon to put Hobart through the USN Fleet Training Group workup program for a newly commissioning DDG. Guy was so impressed he wrote to Fleet Headquarters advocating adoption of a similar concept, with it eventually being taken up. When I joined Perth with my compatriot sub-lieutenants Bob White and Bob Darlington to earn our bridge watchkeeping certificates, we didn't appreciate that we were joining a ship with a crew which had already adopted the highest standards possible. We were going to war and it was time to get serious. The DDG standard was to eventually become the RAN's benchmark. I'll give you an example. I joined Perth from Vampire, which still had an open bridge. On one of many middle watches I seemed to keep as a trainee, whilst on passage from Jarvis Bay to Sydney, and with the loom of Sydney lights clearly visible on the port bow, but no land within 30 miles on the radar, the officer watch had declared emphatically that we were lost. I was sent to summon the navigator, Mike Kay, to come to the bridge and fix the ship. I won't dwell on the personal abuse which ensued, but even as a junior officer, I could tell the difference between Perth and Vampire was like chalk and cheese. Perth's workup was serious business. My action station was the AA control officer, or GDO visual. Mike Ward had been a gunnery officer in Vampire, now Perth, so I got the job he had trained me up for. But I had to find sailors who knew how the AA control equipment worked so they could teach me. It was pretty smart stuff. But in our wisdom, we hadn't bought any training equipment for the ships. On Perth's first deployment, Orm Cooper, whose normal role was as the gun system weir, was made the gun plot officer because the chief FC, whose job it should have been, couldn't be trained up on the system before the ship deployed. Two of our, sub, two of our subbies found ourselves in an AA control watch bill with a POQMG, and the third took notes around the bombardment navigation plot. But Captain David Leach took considerable interest in us newbies and after a non too subtle remark one of us made about not getting time on the bridge to earn a watchkeeping certificate, changes were made. We did receive our full tickets before the deployment finished but we had to set a formal board of examination with all the HODs and subspecialist officers finished off personally by the captain before we could get it. The term First 11 has been used to describe the standard of a DDG wardroom. It was certainly true back then. David Leach was a four-ring captain on his second drive. David Thompson was the, was the XO and had commissioned Perth as its navigator and then navigated Sydney. 
He was promoted to commander during our deployment. The WEO was Des Miller and the MEA was Aidan Laid, and both were commanders. Brian Gibbs was the Lieutenant Commander Pusser, and every Seaman subspecialist was a Lieutenant Commander Long Course Qualified Officer, and there were five of them. There was most definitely a sergeant's end of the wardroom table, but it was friendly. How could you not learn from that group in that environment? I've served in DDGs five times, when I've progressed from laundry morale through bridge and CIC watchkeeping to XO and then command. As a colleague has said, DDG service sharpened you up. At the outset, for me, and quite likely for others, to be chosen for a DDG in those early days was almost certainly the luck of the draw in a Navy that was expanding and already very busy. It was also to my personal everlasting benefit. After our final battle problem, Perth was nominated to conduct the first public firing of ICARA. The press, multiple politicians and the fleet commander, Admiral Crabbe, were duly embarked to witness the spectacle. Next day, on the front page of The Australian, the Admiral was reported as accusing the government of ne neglecting the Navy and that he considers that three DDGs were not enough. This story overshadowed somewhat the report of the ICARA firing, which I, I remember was done on a fixed range and bearing. The media training for senior naval officers might have become more important around that time. After I passed my ocean navigation certificate for the second time, and through no special effort on my part, we arrived in Subic Bay and berthed on Hobart. She was still showing the scars of being attacked by USAF, United States Air Force. David Leach had decided that his policy on such matters was to always shine a bright light on a large white star painted, painted on the quarterdeck and simultaneously squirt both missile system fire control radars at any aircraft coming toward the ship and regarded as a threat while calling on the air emergency radio frequency of 243. Fortunately, that situation didn't arise, but it raises questions about rules of engagement and how matters were conducted. On Hobart's first deployment, Guy Griffiths periodically found coordination between US forces to be seriously lacking and Hobart would transit long distances at high speed for what he regarded was no good reason. The handover process between Hobart and Perth was concluded for us subbies by an innocent introduction to some of the attractions to be found in the Longapo. Such an experience helped me gain an understanding of the cultural norms of the era. The XO had decided that when we were in Subic Bay, the three subbies will be one in three as shore patrol officers. This involved arriving at the USN shore patrol headquarters adjacent to the Alongapoa naval base gate and joining with the USN shore patrol contingent while awaiting the occasional call. When all was quiet, we took rides in jeeps to inspect the town and its features, which could be simply summarised as interesting. <coughs> Excuse me. When Australian sailors were reported as causing a problem, it was my responsibility to investigate. The USN did not like confronting Australian sailors because they answered back and didn't respond well. Whereas, as one of their own, I was invariably offered a Sam Ming beer 
and a space to join in the party, and then discuss why their lives were so full of meaning. The problem was usually involved amicably after we talked about a few facts of life. It made sense for the Navy to reinvest in my self-taught DDG training and experience as it also did for others. That recycling of people back through the ships, however, helped overcome the inadequate training arrangements which existed in Australia for much of their service. Prior to joining Hobart for a further deployment in 1970, I undertook the 16-week ORO course, or the Little D course it was, it was known, at Watson. The course was very good with various aspects of practice and theory, but the technical aspects were all about R and equipment and nothing about DDGs. When I arrived in Hobart, it was fortunate they had developed excellent self-help guides for people like me. Hobart underwent its workup and we have finished our pre-deployment leave, but the government changed its mind about us going. I found out about it when I heard it on the radio news while inbound from home to the dockyard. The captain found out the night before when the duty officer told him after his wife had phoned to tell him that it was on the TV news. Our consolation prize was to become Melbourne's DDG. This marked an important point though. This was the first time a DDG had broken the mould of working up and deploying to Vietnam, which in the process had effectively segregated them from the rest of the RAN. The ships were good places to learn about leaderships, and I'll give an example. While on our way to RIMPAC, the Melbourne task group normally did officer watch manoeuvres between 0600 and 8 o'clock. Those at breakfast generally enjoyed it. As officer watch of Hobart, I managed to go through the slot while still doing 24 knots and rang down half a stern to get the speed off. The captain was sitting in his chair with a wry smile on his face and seemed nonplussed, unlike me, who tried to look totally in control while feeling completely wretched. The flashing light to Hobart from the flagship was, report name of officer the watch. To which Rocker promptly told the yeoman to reply, Robertson. It was a demonstration of leadership, accountability and loyalty downwards, which I never forgot either in my own commands or in other circumstances. It was a salutary lesson in terms of the buck stops here. Provided you learn from them, I thought that the DDG environment in Vietnam and later encouraged that sense of support and tolerance of mistakes and your growth as a naval officer. The RAN staff requirement for a service to air guided weapons ship which led to acquisition of the DDGs had been for a modern all-purpose escort, which was somewhat far-sighted in concept. The ship was to have three medium helicopters, variable depth and hull-mounted sonar, a medium caliber gun, a surface-to-air missile system, and ICARA, but such a ship didn't exist. The Naval Board knew that the British Sea Slug missile had technical problems because it had access to all the Woomera trials results. Guy Griffiths thought that Sea Slug was aptly named. The USN Tata was deemed much better and theoretically could be retrofitted in the Daring's and ICARA was intended to be fitted as well. CNS Burrell wanted a modified RN County class with Tata fitted instead of Sea Slug 
and the propulsion system changed to be all steam instead of combined steam gas. Senator Gorton made the call for the Adams class because it provided the RAN with USN standardisation, which was the overriding concern of the government and the ships were in service. What neither of them knew when we signed the contract was that Tata also had major reliability problems that wouldn't be fixed until about when Perth was building. The Icara magazine was fitted to the ships as they were constructed. It was made from aluminium. And examining options for the RN modifications to the Adams class to carry helicopters and VDS, the USN had proposed placing the Icara magazine between the machinery spaces and taking missiles to the launcher via a lift. This, ar this arrangement would have required removal of Mount 52 and it would have introduced blind arc and blast problems for Tata and the idea was eventually dropped. Shortly after arrival in Subic for its first deployment, Perth landed its complete outfit of Icara missiles after seeing the USN DDG with its upper deck shredded by shrapnel and being advised by the USN that carriage of Icara represented a risk if Perth took similar damage. Hobart did the same on its second deployment, which is probably a good thing because the effect of a Sparrow missile whizzing around inside a loaded magazine could have been quite spectacular. The process of managing operational requirements and project management methods, as we now better understand, has taken some time to be reached. We bought the DDGs without a definitive statement of requirements and without a project office. Rear Admiral Max Lee has only recently died and he was the project officer. We later bought NCDS without knowing in detail what its operational parameters were and its performance was a shock to fleet staff and we undertook the second modernisation of the DDGs in a manner which resulted in the project being unable to prepare an attestant evaluation master plan of any consequence. And Brisbane needed further modification before it went to the first Gulf War, even though it had only finished its second update two years earlier. Even with other improvements, their second modernisation in the mid to late 1980s still left the DDGs fitted with SM1, whereas the USN had been introducing SM2 from the mid-1970s and with some work could have replaced the DDG system. Hence the combat systems of the ships were obsolescent by the mid-1980s and obsolete after the first Gulf War, by which time SM1 was only a self-defence weapon and probably of marginal performance against current threats. To be fair, neither Australia's senior defence bureaucrats nor its, nor its politicians understood what they really wanted from their Navy in the RAN was all own voice. Regardless, technical alignment with the USN and through life supportability of the ships were the primary drivers of those major modifications and not operational performance against current and postulated threats. In reality, we kept the ships in service for about a decade too long. The DDGs were American warships manned by an all-Australian crew. They had minimal features of our RN origin ships and although some damage control markings were similar. When they were building, we had insisted on having a wardroom bar. 
a separate captain's pantry, a petty officer's, can't pantry, yeah, petty officer's cafe, and doors on their heads. So there were some aspects of our, our own heritage which we carried forward. There's been academic research highlighting the cultural divide between RAN officers and sailors up to the mid-1950s. If it still existed by the mid-1960s, I was too focused on surviving as a junior officer to notice it. Although Perth's officers had responsibilities, so too did her sailors, and service by both constituencies while on operations required the development of high levels of trust for each other, which less Lesser stressful circumstances do not necessarily inculcate. Hence, it was an all-Australian show where any cultural attributes which could have been described as RN in nature were well overshadowed by Australian attributes of RAN officers and sailors. Finally, let me turn to an issue which just about everybody has an interest in, and I'm talking about promotions. Peter Everly might be able to shed light on what I call the DDG effect for promotion so far as sailors were concerned, but there most definitely was such an effect for DDG's commanding officers and heads of departments. When the ships were operational or completing trials and the officers stayed in command, there were 68 officers of captain, commander or lieutenant commander rank who commanded a DDG. Of that number, 55 reached the rank of Commodore representing an 81% strike rate. Of 12 officers reaching Vice Admiral between 1982 and 2005, 10 had commanded a DDG. With one exception, from 1955 to 1982, the RAN had been commanded by an officer who had commanded an aircraft carrier. From 1982 to 2008, also with one exception, it was commanded by an officer who had commanded a DDG. The time span of those two periods give light to the impact those officers individually and collectively had on the development and the culture of the RAN. But it wasn't just the seamen officers. Between 1979 and 2001, there were five WIOs promoted to Rear Admiral, of which four have been the WIO of a DDG. And from 1984 to 2001, there were five supply officers promoted to Rear Admiral, of which four had been the supply officer of a DDG. Both, therefore, had a strike rate of 80%. DDG MEOs fared less well as a group, probably because of the requirement to recruit MEOs from senior sailors who didn't get the opportunity to grain breadth needed at high rank. If winning the Gloucester Cup is one measure of high standards, Hobart won it eight times, and until the year 2001, this was more than any other ship previously. Brisbane won it three times and Perth once. The disparity is interesting, but as a class, DDGs were consistent winners. Let me conclude by trying to stay on time. I think that our Vietnam operations build a relationship between the RAN and USM which continues today as a deep and helpful one and very much to our own and mutual benefit with the United States Navy. But it doesn't replace the need for us to be a competent and self-reliant organisation and able to make our own choices for our own reasons. I think it can be properly said that the RAN's formation of operational and other expertise was significantly aided by a prolonged period of intimate support by the RN 
but buying the DDGs unwittingly placed all of that heritage and benefit at risk, not the least because it would not be possible for the REN to replicate its RN relationship with the United States Navy. By the year 2001, when the last DDG paid off, the RAN had become much more self-reliant and confident as a medium power Navy than it had been in 1960 when Australia's government had decided to acquire the ships. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, David. The next presentation will be on naval operations by Vice Admiral Rob Walls. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, David. And James, that's a historical perspective, which I hadn't expected, but I now appreciate. Being told how long ago it was that I was serving in a DDG in Vietnam makes me feel really pleased to be still here to talk to you today. Um, it's a personal perspective. I'll make that point again. Let me begin by saying that on the afternoon of the 18th of December 1965, as a youngish lieutenant, I was standing pierside in freezing conditions as one of the crew in the commissioning ceremony of HMAS Boston, sorry, HMAS Hobart in Boston Naval Shipyard. The following day and night, it snowed heavily. The morning following the storm, with USN advice, we began clearing ice off the ship's rigging and decks. I'm not at all sure of how or why the posters got me there, but it was the beginning of a chain of events that shaped the rest of my life, and particularly my naval career. In the first half of the 60s, I served in two frigates and then in the commissioning company of HMAS Derwent. I saw active service at sea in the Malayan emergency and confrontasi against Indonesia. Minor events in the great scheme of things. Through the late 50s and the early 60s, the RAN had been transitioning from a post-World War II Korea Navy, closely related and in part integrated with the British Royal Navy into an Australian one, as David's outlined. When I joined Britannia Royal Naval College Dartmouth as a midshipman in 1959, the RAN was at a nadir of men and equipment. You're probably aware that in the early 60s there were a number of naval incidents and accidents such as the Melbourne Voyager collision, which reflected on officer quality and leadership. Even so, the RAN was on its way back up. Revitalisation of the Navy had begun. It started with Navy Minister John Gorton, later Prime Minister, and Vice Admiral Henry Burrell. The 60s and early 70s saw a massive subsurface, surface and aviation force development program for the RAN, which had far-reaching effects on structure, on organisation, on logistics and on training, to name but a few. And as well, there was a significant increase in manpower in the early 60s, which was continued through to the 70s. Now, these changes, and as British Prime Minister Harold Macmillan said at the time, events, dear boy, events, 
led to what I assert was a significant lift in performance by the RAN. Vietnam was one of these events and a catalyst for improvement. It might surprise some of you to learn that the Navy was better prepared to make its contribution to the Vietnam War in 1965 and could have been anticipated in 1960. I won't go into the reasons why, they've been addressed here at ADFA before. But let me go back now to the good ship Hobart. Whoops, wrong one. Try this one again, sorry about that. As you've heard, Captain Guy Griffiths was already an experienced warrior who knew the face of naval battle. He started his World War II as a midshipman in HMS Renown, sunk by the Japanese off the coast of Malaya. He was awarded the DSC for service at Lingayen Gulf and later he served in Korea. As has already been outlined by David, thank you, Captain Griffiths, having seen that Perth had undergone a minimalist training program in the US after commissioning, as indeed did Brisbane, which followed later, Captain Griffiths was determined to get the best he could for his ship and its company. And he wanted to make sure that everyone knew their jobs as well as possible. He personally researched and liaised so that he knew what the USN had to offer and how to get the best of it for Hobart. As an aside, Brisbane had an appointment in Vietnam and training in the US and Australia was on a short timeline. You can draw your own conclusions. For us though, there was a strictly supervised US-led trials, tests, an evaluation period off the east coast of the US, then through the Panama Canal to San Diego. This was followed by a post-shakedown availability in Long Beach Naval Shipyard. Before and after that availability, the ship was in the hands of Com Traypac and the Fleet Training Group. Now I found this whole process of bringing a newly built warship into operational service remarkably better, that's to say more effective and more efficient than anything that I'd experienced the year before in the Derwent. The USN process was structured, coordinated, quality controlled and documented and with repeats where needed. I had no doubt that we needed such a system, a systems approach in the RAN. The Air Fleet Training Group, led by a USN captain, and supported by Hobart's captain, had a dramatic impact on the ship and later on the Australian fleet. To use an old fashioned expression that I think is now up to date, as of today, Captain Griffith's work came up trumps. We all knew we were heading to Vietnam. Just like every other USN ship, the fleet training group was preparing for service in Westpac. Captain Griffiths worked as hard. We loved our magic ship with its magnificent new systems and equipment, and we did well. Outstanding, said the fleet training group. We all smiled. We got back to Australia in September 80, uh, 96, start again, 66. And after a major exercise, sword hilt, it was home for Christmas. Our Christmas present was being told go to Vietnam. We had some crew changes, but essentially 
we were much the same ship's company. We did a workup in the East Australian exercise areas, mainly naval gunfire support, surface warfare and anti-air warfare. But since we weren't sure what we might face, we made extensive use of the USN's fleet training group scenarios. In those days, the Australian fleet oversighted ships' workups. These were run by the ships themselves. Performance in the fleet was assessed by annual competitions between ships for a series of cups and shields for various departments, for example, gunnery. Readiness wasn't in the lexicon. A lesson was learnt about developing ships' performance and thus improving readiness from this, and the workup process for DDGs was changed at the end of that year. On the 1st of March 1967, Hobart was at sea preparing for missile firings. Nine o'clock in the morning, the ship changed to the Australian White Ensign. Captain Griffiths said in his report of proceedings, remember those reports of proceedings? Those were the days. The significance of this act was appreciated by all on board. The Hobart left Sydney on the evening of the 7th of March 67 for a fast passage to the Philippines. Shortly after clearing the heads, training serials for the ops room crews and our USN trained air intercept controllers, of which I was one, were conducted through the night with the control and reporting unit at RAF Brookvale and Mirage aircraft from RAF Williamtown. This was the first time that I know of of the Air Force helping prepare Navy ships for combat operations through a series of training exercises. Now, these had been initiated after Hobart's return to Australia. The practice has continued ever since and I saw it repeated in the first Gulf War, a lesson learnt. After extensive briefings from 7th Fleet staff, an extremely helpful and supportive welcome from the USN in the U Subic Bay, Hobart headed for the gun line off the South Vietnamese coast. Firing commenced on the 31st of March and Captain Griffiths reported that our morale was high. Now, I hope you're still going all right in the back row there, thanks Ron. I'll leave that up while I talk to it. Uh, my experiences in Vietnam operations then, a couple of things which I think are worth remarking, as well as my work in Hobart as a five-inch control officer, an operations room officer and an air intercept controller on Sea Dragon operations north of the DMZ and the gun line to the south, I also served as an AIC in the carrier USS Kitty Hawk, which was doing alpha strikes on the North Vietnam, and the CGN, USS Long Beach, performing as the Piraz ship in the Gulf of Tonkin, positive identification radar advisory sole, controlling the air war, the air picture. In Long Beach, I used naval tactical data system computers to assist vectoring fighters towards attacking North Vietnamese aircraft. The tactical air picture we used was compiled with the assistance of information exchanged between units in real time via data links. Hobart did not have them. More eye-opening, another lesson learnt.
more of that in a minute. So the next item I'd comment on is training. Time and again, in situations of stress and demand, for example, under enemy fire, the vital value of the intense training we'd had in the USA and later under Captain Griffith's direction proved its worth. I state categorically that it saved our lives. It also helped us create an oper operational reputation for the RAN that earned high praise from the USN and the Marines and soldiers we supported on the beach and beyond. It's a good feeling to know that to the folks ashore, you are the shooter of choice. The DDG's performance also had a positive effect on the whole RAN, the whole Navy. Now further, the late 60s saw the beginnings of the RAN School of Training Technology and a systems approach to training. I learnt from that, and much development's occurred since, of course. The impact of the Hobart example on me was that my approach to training and its vitality was shaped for the rest of my career. I was known to be somewhat merciless about it, all the way through to Fleet Commander. A maxim for you, train hard, the life you save could be your own. Now another thing that happened to me in Hobart was that I'd attempted to keep up with individual USN training standards by attending night school. And I tried to come to grips with the technology and the ship systems and equipments. I came to realise then the value of technical education. I needed to become technically literate and I took steps to be so. Related to this, in those days in the RAN, there was a clear division of labour between operators and maintainers. But it was equally evident that in DDGs, systems such as those related to missiles and gunnery had positions that were obviously better performed by a maintainer than a so-called operator. If you like, a merger and acquisition process applied. Another lesson. Now my next item interacts directly with the first, it's people. Some of the crew for Hobart were quite carefully selected, but not all. Nonetheless, by March 67, it was quite clear that the ship's teamwork hummed. I could add that that was because of, as well as in spite of, some of the personalities we had on board. My post-Vietnam view, we were really enthusiastic about our ship, we thought we were lucky, and we wanted to stay that way. I'd also observe that there was a distinct separateness between officers and men in the late 50s, early 60s, which preparation for and service in Vietnam put aside. The Royal American Navy, as some called the DDGs, helped blaze the trail for better relationships and better performance. I don't believe that's changed for the worst in the years since. For me, as a product of essentially Royal Navy approaches to training, I served five and a half years in the RN. Part of this self-evolution was the US Navy's approach to its sailors. Bear in mind, too, that this was the mid-60s, a time of social change, hippies, flower power, and the sexual revolution. 
If you're going to San Francisco, went the song. Hobart did. When I did my recall up to USN standards as an air intercept controller at Damneck, Virginia, in November 65, I was amazed at the performance and quality of the work of the USN petty officers and chiefs who did about 75% of the USN's air control. Further, in 1965, USN controllers were being trained ambidextrously. That's to say, to handle legacy analogue equipments on the old ships and digital naval tactical data systems for new ships. My next lesson learnt then was early on I formed the view that the RAN should make much better and wider use of its operational sailors, for example as air controllers of all types. Captain Griffiths needed little persuading and we qualified two sailor AICs before leaving the States, Gary Barnes and Butch Halliwell. Sailor air controllers proved their worth in a variety of Vietnam operations, particularly handling aircraft spotting fall of shop, which was vital in counter-battery situations. We were under enemy fire nine times. More sailors followed for all the DDGs. They were normally selected after qualifying as an RAN ASAC, an anti-submarine air controller, at least six sub-lieutenants and leading seamen RPs were subsequently trained in the US. Peter Everly was one of them. A further lesson, of course, was that the RAN needed to go digital for its operations. It had to join the automation revolution rather than waiting to be led. Now, that's a simple remark, but in effect, the DDG's active service in Vietnam was what I consider a light bulb event. Enough senior officers and sailors of all branches of the Navy got on the digital horse for the formal process of acquisition and commensurate change to get the impetus needed. Keep in mind that the DDG-2 Charles F. Adams class were the first purpose-designed guided missile destroyers in the United States Navy. They needed automation and Vietnam emphasised that. Perth completed fit-out of the Naval Combat Data System in Long Beach in 75. I was Fleet Direction Officer at the time and was responsible, together with Lieutenant Fred Sanders, a very fine WEO, DDG experience and a great personal friend, for the Fleet Headquarters end of planning and supervising her OPAVEL-type assessment on return to Australia. Disappointingly, things didn't go well. There was much work generated as a result. Brisbane and Hobart were subsequently fitted with NCDS in Australia. Hindsight tells me that the history of NCDS in the DDGs was one of ups and downs. I think that operationally, it took the RAN a long time to come to grips with digital data systems, but that was equally true of the world at large. Despite recommendations from the fleet and elsewhere, policy was ephemeral and action was a variable. A point to bear in mind too was that the early NCDS was a version of the US junior participating tactical data system, not the full NTDS. And ultimately, JPDS became a legacy system in the USN as indeed did NTDS. These days, the requirements for running a navy as opposed to operating ships are much better appreciated. 
And Admiral Purcell and as Admiral Shackleton said, uh, you can get more light on the issues from them. Now, another thought that applies to my Vietnam experience is sustainability. Here I'm not thinking of the obvious. I'll leave that to those who follow. But rather in the context of fatigue management. Most of us on board have worked hard, we thought, in early experiences like in my case, Confrontasi in Derwent, but the, the two watch defence watch routine for up to say 35 to 40 days in Vietnam was unlike anything before for me. It was mostly tough and demanding work with inevitable periods of boredom. Not surprisingly, when called to action stations in these conditions, tired people make misjudgments or mistakes when under stress. In Hobart, we had a case when under fire off North Vietnam with both five-inch mounts in automatic, 40 rounds a minute each, doing counter-battery fire, the ship under full power at over 30 knots and weaving when a sudden drop in boiler water level wasn't responded to correctly. A potential disaster. The sailor concerned was relieved, rested and requalified. A lesson relearnt about fatigue. And later as the captain of ships and then as fleet commander I was of the view that attempting to fight people over sustained periods in two watches was inappropriate. Fatigue management became part of the lexicon and the knowledge, and I hope it still is. Another maxim. Stay alert. Stay alive. There are various definitions of operational readiness depending upon its usage. Depending on its usage, I think you'll understand my context. I mentioned the USN Fleet Training Group. After Hobart's return to Sydney from Vietnam, there was a push to set up an Australian version of the FTG to get Hobart ready to go back and relieve Perth in 68. I was a member of it. We worked the ship up using graduated and graded exercises, culminating in a mini war called Kesarah, what will be all conducted in the East Australia exercise areas. There'd been a big crew changeover and it wasn't easy for anyone. The RAN fleet training group was too few in number and lacked sufficient experienced personnel to do the job properly. Subsequent events are another story. Suffice to say that the ship did well, very well in Vietnam, but had some bad luck. As you've heard, it was hit by friendly fire from the USAF in June 68. Three missiles killed two sailors and wounded more. Now, the RAN Fleet Training Group then had, I believe, a chequered career. My observations of its ups and downs relate to personalities, resourcing, quality and combat experience. Some things don't change. Having said that, the Fleet Training Group certainly had its successes and it made a substantial contribution to operational readiness then and subsequently. The good news is it's come a long way. We certainly worked hard on operational readiness when I was in Fleet Headquarters. And as you've heard, like many others, I kept going back to DDGs ashore as well as afloat. My final posting of four to a DDG as captain of the Brisbane 
was the most enjoyable one of my career, I think. It's been pointed out elsewhere that the USN-style ops layout and so on in post-modernised DDGs didn't suit the command and control system the RAN was using at the time. Recall too that the principal warfare system that was using was an RN invention, trying to match with USN ships and equipment. I can't really comment much because in Brisbane I was never in a position where the command's demands exceeded what could be delivered. Brisbane seemed okay in the first Gulf War though. And that war illustrates, as you've heard again, that the DDGs served on for more than 25 years after Vietnam. Now, time doesn't permit me addressing issues such as how the RN employed DDGs in the post-Vietnam years as part of its activities like RIMPAC and kangaroos and so on. North Vietnam was all about gunships. How was the ship's AAW, anti-air warfare, capability used in later years, for example? Noting these days, it's already been pointed out, it's a short-range capability. To sum up then, Geoffrey Gray wrote in his official history up top, the deployment of RAN destroyers to operate with the US 7th Fleet in Vietnam provided an excellent test of the ships, their capabilities and their crews. This was especially the case with the newly acquired DDGs. I'm of the view that the RAN's participation in the Vietnam War, not just the DDGs, injected a focused sense of purposeful professionalism into its people. It's built on an enthusiasm for change and development that was already there. We learnt the lessons, we put emphasis on training, we developed our people, we ensured our sustainability and we embraced the digital future. So there you have it, personal insights into some of my DDG experiences that I know shaped and developed my approach to life in the Navy and its purposes. There are also, I hope, insights into the operational performance, the operational professionalism and culture that Navy developed because of the DDGs and their Vietnam service. Thank you for listening. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this video and podcast. And uh, also we invite you to look at the website of the Un University of New South Wales, Canberra, the Naval Studies Group page for more information about the series. And finally, we'd like to thank Navanti Australia for the generous support to this three-part series. Thank you.